Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. A little bit of housekeeping today. I am going on vacation, which means that we're going to have a brief hiatus in the Save What You Love podcast here. I won't be airing episodes on the 25th of July or August 1st, but we will be back with a brand new episode on August 8th. So thank you for sticking with us, and I'll miss you, and we will see you again soon. But for today, please enjoy this amazing conversation with Ian Gill. Ian is joining us from Clayquot Sound on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Ian was a founder of Ecotrust Canada and now a founder of Salmon Nation, which is a network I'm a proud member of and one that is a partner in this podcast. Ian talks about a brand new initiative called Salmon Stories, where we're inviting you to send in your salmon stories. Tell us what your connection is to this absolutely sacred creature as a part of our bioregion. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps a ton. Leave a review in your own words if you like. And also remember that we are still in prime salmon grilling season. If you want salmon ordered right to your door from the most regenerative fishery on earth, go ahead over to avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com and order flash-frozen wild Bristol Bay sockeye fillets to your door. Thank you for listening. Can't wait to see you in a couple weeks. Today, enjoy the episode with Ian Gill. Take care. See you soon. Ian Gill, welcome. Where in the world are you right now? I'm on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Actually, I'm further west than that. I'm on the west coast of a small island off the west coast of Vancouver Island in the uh, traditional Halthui or territory of the New Chalmath peoples of uh, British Columbia. That sounds fantastic. Um, I, I am, um, I am on Woodby Island in, in the traditional Lummi territory and, um, the islands are good. You know, the coast is a good place to be. And, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to dive into, you know, why this place is so special. This place we have, um, we're happy and proud to live in called Salmon Nation. Um, but I'm going to start off this morning here with a question for you, catalyzed by an article I read about you in a July 2005 edition of BC Business, Larry Pinn describes oh you goodness. then as a 50-year-old Native Australian with boyish good looks and charm and something of a guiding light between the old and new economies, between the extremism of pillage and protection. So the question is, how do you keep up those boyish good looks, man? <laughs> Uh, mostly just eating salmon and you know having a thoroughly abstemious lifestyle um and you know and i sleep the sleep of the innocent so you know all of those things combined um 
go towards you know, my my uh, saving myself and my looks from the edge of decrepitude. <laughs> Perfect. All right. That's good. Now that we got that out of the way, um, you know, as a journalist, yeah. uh, I, I, former journalist, I, I won't bury the lead. So I, I really want to um, have you just give us a hundred thousand foot view um, before we dig into the, the meat of the matter. But um, what is the Salmon Stories Fellowship that you are working on right now? And um, we are collectively working on as a, uh, as a cohort in Salmon Nation. Well, it's um, it's kind of a big and a small thing, I guess. Um, the big idea is that we are creatures of narrative, all of us. Um, and the narratives we choose to share with each other, the narratives that <laughs> govern how we behave internally, our sort of interior monologues, if you will, but also how we see the world, um, how we imagine the world sees us and how we choose to live in the world is all a function, I think, of narrative and the narratives we um, choose to hear and choose to believe and choose to share. And that's a good and a bad thing in some ways because um, you can see uh, there was some guy with weird coloured hair who professed to be the leader of the free world um, for a few years in your country, um, whose ascension to the White House was totally a uh, just a flood of a certain narrative that got him there and kept him there and finally got him out. Um, so your narratives can be uh, powerful propellers, if you will, of uh, both good and evil. Um, and... You know, so it's probably you're just cognitively. It's what makes the world go round um, for good and for bad. Uh, so we think that um, salmon stories, and I'll get to the details of them in a minute. But the idea of creating a really powerful uh, new narrative around how we live on the planet. Uh, and how we survive on the planet. Um, you know, there's there's very sort of high level things about well, you know, we're in this climate crisis, or we're in this pandemic, or you know, um, that we're consuming resources more quickly than they can replenish, and you know, we're sort of eating the world alive as we go. That's all very true. Um, in this part of the world, I think that can be pulled down to a level of specificity. Uh, which is useful to people. Um, so once you get beyond the sort of you know, almost UN-level rhetoric about um, you know, what's sustainable or not, when you get down to where we live and how we live in a particular place, we need narratives about things that um, we can touch and feel and have some connection to that are relevant in our daily lives and that give us some sort of um, something tangible to grab onto as we try and think about um, what are the markers, if you will, uh, about how we're living and succeeding or failing um, in living well uh, where we live. Um, The sort of keystone species of how we're doing in this part of the world. 
And we believe that we need a new and constant and expanded uh, and vibrant narrative about the place of salmon in all of our lives in Salmon Nation. Um, and Salmon Nation is this area, as we think of it, this bioregion from the north, northern California to the north slope of Alaska. It's the home of wild Pacific salmon, also of um, you know, the coastal temperate rainforests um, that support them and vice versa. So um, we think it's just absolutely important that we elevate wild salmon um, in the minds of everybody in Salmon Nation. 35 million people live in this region. Uh, and we need to make very clear to people that um, past the generalities of what's going on with you know, climate and everything else, there's very specific things happening to uh, a keystone species, wild salmon, and that if we don't pay attention to that and if we don't force policymakers and legislators and decision makers and, and investors and everybody, frankly, to pay attention to what's happening with salmon, then uh, that's a mistake on our part. That's just willfully ignoring um, a great uh, signal that's coming to us from our natural environment. Um, and so for us, the story of salmon in the end um, becomes the story of everything in Salmon Nation. That's huge, uh, and obviously uh, a lot to unpack. Um, so clearly, um, there is an initiative now inside of the work that you and we are are all doing to hone in and identify and and tell this story of salmon. And um, I think it has been approached in a very novel way that uh, you've constructed. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of a Salmon Story Fellowship for people inside of this bioregion and, and specifically in, in various parts of the bioregion and what we're trying to pull off with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I realized that I did almost a politician's trick on you then and um, didn't answer your question because you answer, asked me your question about the fellowship <laughs> and I gave you a um, uh, probably remarkably incoherent speech about yeah, salmon and uh, life in the cosmos. Um, so coming down to where you are in terms of the fellowships, so one thing we want to do is to um, create a, a, a kind of a constant um, presence of salmon in uh, people's, in the public imagination and doing that through mostly social media and creating stories which just continue to sort of almost drip daily into people's lives that remind them about um, the importance of salmon on this coast. Uh, and, you know, there are all sorts of ways of doing journalism, you know, going out and getting stories, interviewing fisheries managers or biologists or fish people who fish for a living or people who eat fish and everything else. Um, but, we want to actually find stories that are kind of almost everyday stories uh, from people who are not the experts and not necessarily the people you go to when you think about salmon. These could be truck drivers or loggers or teachers or bureaucrats. Um, they can be anybody. You know, they can be um, people you see in the street. They can be business people in suits. They can be um, people driving a bus. Uh, I mean, what we want to 
do, in a sense, is sort of democratize people's relationship or the expression of people's relationship to salmon in a way that um, helps everybody realize that what happens to salmon happens to everybody. Um, and this is not just... You know, and so the fight to protect wild salmon is not just a fight about fish. You know, it's, it's actually way bigger than just fish. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to get fish farms out of BC waters or if you're trying to um, you know, create a marine protected area in some cases or not create a marine protected area in other cases, whether you're trying to... Um, whatever it is, is that's going on, we want to make sure that people realize that um, the effects on salmon are effects on everybody and everything in this region. So the idea of the fellowship is rather than have a bunch of professional storytellers go out and harvest stories and put them in your traditional media, we're interested in creating a way in which we can get fellows or people signing up for this fellowship to get those stories for us. So the basic idea is, and, and then to get these stories from what we call edge communities, because again, media such as it exists these days is usually fairly centralized and, and um, relies upon um, pretty old sort of story harvesting techniques and it ignores people out in rural areas for the most part and it ignores the people who have great stories to tell because they're too hard to get to or it just doesn't occur to people to ask them for their opinion. So we're really interested in getting stories from out on the edge rather than just the predictable stories. And to do that, we've um, set up a fellowship. We're asking people to uh, apply and we'll pay them $1,000 per fellowship to go and get us 10 stories from people. And um, they're just short video stories, um, as diverse as we, we can possibly find, um, of people in different regions in Salmon Nation who have a story to tell, and it, and it can be an epic story or it can be a really ordinary sort of mundane story. We don't care. The point is we do care about getting content from um, unusual people and unusual voices in sort of places that aren't usually visited by media. So the fellowship is just a way to basically say to someone, and it's not, we're not asking for some great technical ability or anything else. I mean, some of these stories will be shot on nothing more sophisticated than, than a phone, um, but a phone camera, uh, but we're basically saying um, find these stories, share them with us, and then once we've got a bank of stories, we've got a plan to start to distribute them over time and sort of build this um, profile, this kind of fabric, if you will, of Salmon Nation uh, through the voices of people who have a salmon story. And... Um, we don't really know what those salmon stories are going to be. We don't. The whole point of doing this kind of form of um, journalism, if you will, is to uh, not go in with a preconceived notion of what a salmon story is, and sit back and watch the kind of wonder happen. And so we're really excited about that. In addition to the fellowships, we're just asking, and, and so we're paying people. Um, we've already got some people who've applied, and they just come to uh, salmonnation.net. And um, they can apply to be a fellow. Uh, we'll be sorting that out and launching these people into the world pretty soon. Um, in addition to that, we're just saying to people as well, um, send in a salmon story. So there's a mechanism where someone could just 
shoot something of themselves on the phone or their friend or their um, neighbor or their you know, family member um, and send in a salmon story. And we are going to pay uh, people um, both to be fellows, but we're also going to pay people for uh, just $50 for a story that we use um, and that we broadcast later on. And part of the idea of doing that is that um, we sort of want to recognize that stories have value. So um, we go out a lot as journalists and get people's stories and really, it's not a very good deal for people who you know, have these amazing stories. We go out, get their stories. We write them and publish them under our name. They're the subject of the story, and yet the subject of the story doesn't get anything for their time or trouble or, frankly, for their knowledge. And so this is a small experiment that we hope to make a large experiment in terms of starting to place um, a, an appropriate value on the wisdom of people who we're speaking to in collecting these salmon stories. So, so that's the basic idea. Um, and then, I mean, you may know of Humans of New York, which was this sort of rather remarkable photography series that was done um, and turned into books. And you know, the guy who started it just started asking people, taking a picture of someone in New York and asking them who they were and what they did. And it became this sensation. He's got over 20 million followers now or something like that. I'm not sure if we're going to achieve the same thing here, but that's the basic idea is to sort of have a salmon story pop up everywhere all the time. You can't get away from these things. <laughs> we want salmon stories everywhere, people from everywhere in Salmon Nation. And to basically build this really vivid, diverse tapestry fabric, if you will, of who people are in Salmon Nation and what their story is about uh, what they love. Uh, and one of the things that people love in this region is salmon. No doubt. And uh, as, a, as a fellow who just sort of bumbled into Salmon Nation um, through no intention of my own, my, my folks moved out here from the Midwest of the U.S. Uh, when I was six months old. And um, you will find that Pretty much anybody that's spent any significant time in the Northwest, BC, Alaska, Northern California, Oregon, has a salmon story. And in fact, if you want to get the heat going rather quickly around the coffee table or in the diner, start bringing up salmon because everybody has a story and or an opinion, and it's usually pretty um, passionate, shall we say. Uh, so I'm excited about this initiative. I think that we're going to find uh, a lot of people that do define their lives and their memories and their intergenerational experiences through the lens of this iconic creature that, that we have here. And obviously, I'm, I'm head over heels in love with them as well. Shifting gears here for a second, uh, I want you to feel free to roam as, as much as you will. Um, I would like to hear your story. You have an incredibly vibrant story as a communicator, as an entrepreneur, as a writer and a creator. And um, dear listener out there, you may be able to detect that Ian has a slightly regional dialect. And um, I think that we could uh, all glean um, a ton from hearing about your story, how you ended up in this incredible place that you call home now, uh, just as I ended up in this incredible place that I call home in Salmon Nation. Um, how, how, what is your story and how did you come into this work that 
fuels you and, and fires your passion every day. Well, um, uh, my uh, story is essentially a series of accidents um, that, and uh, there was never been a plan, but I, uh, I grew up in my regional dialect that you refer to is I grew up in um, or attempted to grow up. I don't think it ever succeeded in doing that, but um, you know, the college try on growing up took place in um, Adelaide, Australia, um, and then I couldn't get out of there fast enough, and so I kind of surfed my way around the world instead of going to university uh, and ended up back in Australia um, about the time that most of my uh, former colleagues at school were finishing their university degrees, and I talked my way into a journalism job. Um, I'll spare you the details of that, but um, you know, I... Uh, um, the one thing I could do well at school was write. And so I just found a journalism job in a, a tiny little paper in northern South Australia and uh, started working as a cub reporter. Um, within a couple of years, I was in Canberra uh, covering federal politics. And a couple of years after that, I was in Canada because my um, girlfriend at the time got a Commonwealth scholarship to come here and study at the University of BC. And I followed her up and... Uh, and then fell in love with Canada um, and ultimately out of love with her and uh, stayed. Um, she went back and I stayed. Uh, my first work in Canada was with the Vancouver Sun. Um, and so this was in the uh, early to mid-80s. And I was a reporter and editor there. And back in those days, the Sun was a pretty decent newspaper. It had its problems, but... Um, as they all do, but it was, you know, it was a serious paper. That's no longer the case, um, as is the sad story of most conventional media uh, in the world. Um, I switched to broadcasting uh, with the CBC um, and uh, spent seven years or so uh, as a television, mostly documentary reporter, and um, I, uh, going back to Australia, sorry, for a moment, I mean, the, most of what I covered down there was actually agricultural economics. Um, I just sort of fell into covering uh, rural issues. And so when I came to Canada, I was interested in land issues. And in particular, I was interested in, um, you know, the relationship between Indigenous people and land, because that's a very contested space in Australia. And it was very hard to ignore living in rural Australia. And when I came to Canada, um, there didn't seem to be many people telling stories about uh, um, uh, land rights, as they were mostly called back then, and um, uh, this sort of relationship between Indigenous people and um, resources. So uh, especially at the CBC, there was an older man there who had been uh, covering environmental issues and he then got assigned to a different show and in our newsroom this kind of job was sitting there that no one was doing so I just started doing that job I just started covering environmental issues and mostly it was to get me out of the office it was the only job no one wanted it and it was the one job that I saw that I thought mm, I could see a lot of British Columbia uh, you know at the government's expense the taxpayers expense no less um, uh, by roaming around and starting to tell these environmental stories. And so that's what I did. Um, and uh, it was enormously good fun. I got to go to all sorts of places that I wouldn't otherwise have seen. 
And you know, frankly, that's where I kind of recognized that there was something very, very unusual, unusually rich um, about the environment of Salmon Nation. Um, rich in story, rich in resources, um, uh, rich in mythology, um, just sort of so rich in so many ways. And uh, so that was my beat. Um, and then uh, I started writing books and doing other things as well and um, uh, finally left the CBC um, in the mid-90s because I'd done a documentary on a place called the Kitlope up in northern BC and um, efforts to protect the Kitlope from industrial logging and this group called Ecotrust who's out of Portland um, was uh, working with the High Slot First Nation to help them protect the Kitlope. And so I went up there with a the cameraman, went into the Kitlope for a week or so, and uh, you know, shot all these interviews and talked to all these people and everything else. And um, uh, Spencer Beebe, who was the founder of Ecotrust, sort of said to me, you know, um, uh, after I'd interviewed him and talked to various people and before my my broadcast had even happened, he sort of said, well, we're looking to open an ecotrust in Canada. Uh, and, you know, wouldn't it be, you know, you, you're pretty well known around BC and you know all the players and everything else. And so we're looking for somebody who could be in a wetsuit one day or, you know, uh, river rafting one day with First Nations people and, you know, in a business suit the next day down in Victoria lobbying the government or somebody who could write proposals and raise money and somebody who knows, you know, where all the bodies are buried and, you know, where all the potential is. And um, Anyway, he went on and on about all these attributes of somebody and he said, you know, who do you know around here who's like that? And I said, well, the only person that um, fits that description is me. And we both kind of looked at each other and kind of went, hmm. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't applying for a job, but um, Spencer's pretty tenacious. He decided that probably wasn't such a bad idea. And anyway, a year later, I was the founding executive director of Ecotrust Canada. And uh, so that was 1994. Um, and uh, I spent you know, a good 20 and more years then um, in. Uh, you know, the role of the founding director of uh, Ecotrust Canada. For a while there, I was actually uh, president and CEO of Ecotrust in the US. Um, at some point, I actually took the Ecotrust model down to Australia back there when I sort of went back for three years experimenting on um, sort of returning home and realizing I'd left my home. Um, and so, uh, and, and my home was here. Um, and so, you know, the work that we did at Ecotrust, we were a conservation organization, yes, but we were also really interested in kind of, you know, um, what the business plan is for living well on this earth. Um, we were sort of focused less on environmental activism and campaigning and more on uh, working at the community level in economic development and, um, you know, land use planning and all those things that, um, you know, were things that especially First Nations communities were struggling to get control over and get their own voice into the mix and their own seat at the table. So it was fascinating work and um, was actually in our work at um, Ecotrust that we incubated the idea of Salmon Nation um, and produced a small book called Salmon Nation uh, 
and never really did anything with the concept. We always thought it was an interesting concept, but we were always busy doing other things. So um, here I am at the end of that long road, um, uh, and um, we are working on Salmon Nation actively now, um, not just as a storytelling vehicle, but basically as a um, an expression of what we see here as being a nature state as opposed to a nation state. You know what what um, what does it look like to live well and um, to act well and to invest well and um, to share innovations and share expressions of regenerative work that um, uh, help us to to the name of your podcast of your you know save what we love by saving where we live if you will um, so that's you know that's a pretty twisted tale but that's how I got here not bad for a uh a fellow that surfed his way through college and, um, I have a sim- similar story and similar sentiment. Um, <laughs> and, um, I think you gave a really beautiful high level view of salmon nation. I was going to ask you about that. So you, uh, adroitly beat me to the punch. Um, I get asked a fair amount when I'm trying to explain salmon nation and this network that I'm gratefully a part of, what is it? And I think you did a really good job of explaining the concept, but, um, uh, drilling down on a more practical level or on a more um, serviceable level for humans that want to get involved as people in grateful people inside of this this bioregion, what does that look like? I mean, what what you know? People ask me, what is it? A company? Is it a movement? You know, on a little more granular level, what? What is it your, your take on being involved in this network, in this cohort of Salmon Nation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and we're still wrestling with that almost daily. Um, the first thing is that if you live in Salmon Nation, you're already part of it. So um, Salmon Nation, the place, exists. Uh, to some degree, we've just sort of named it, if you will, but we've named what's already here. Um, so that's not... Uh, no particular genius on our part, but Donella Meadows, who some of your listeners will know as one of the great sort of systems thinkers um, uh, that has been, whose work has been followed for many years by people who are interested in systems change. Uh, she once said that one of the things you need to do if you want to um, create a, a change in the system is to first sort of rename it. Um, you know, so uh, you know, if you actually want to change, if you want to move the dial, you really need to sort of move the narrative framework in which you're uh, doing your work. And so, um, you know, we could call this place the Pacific Northwest, or we could call it, you know, Cascadia. Some people have referred to Ecotopia, uh, back with Ernest Callenbach's uh, sort of landmark book of the seventies, I think. Um, Salmon Nation, just you, know, we we put a name on it. I think the most important thing is the place. Um, it so happens that we formed an organization because we need to organize what we do. Um, and Salmon Nation, as we currently have it, consists of a trust, which is um, a dozen trusted and revered uh, elders in uh, Salmon Nation who uh, 
sort of oversee what we're doing, if you will, or who are the sort of moral compass for us in terms of um, how we act. We we have this trust that has partners. I'm one of the founding partners um, that just try to operationalize what we're doing. Um, we have in we have formed a network, and people are invited into that network, uh, the Southern Nation Network, which is. Um, as most people who are interested in change realize, networks can be very, very powerful ways of harnessing energy and people. Um, we've uh, set up a nonprofit society called uh, the Magic Canoe, and I can tell you about the provenance of that name if you'd like, but uh, it's a beautiful story. But um, uh, the Magic Canoe is actually the vehicle through which we're doing the storytelling fellowship um, and that will be um, – putting salmon stories out in the world. And the Magic Canoe is also the home to the Festival of What Works, which is a, a festival we launched for the first time last year and are uh, doing again this fall, which turned out to be a really good way of um, sharing online uh, innovations and stories from throughout the bioregion. And then we, um, you know, one of the twinkles in our eye is a, uh, a, a capital organization which will help start to mobilize investments into the kinds of uh, regenerative activities that we see in food and energy and fisheries and forestry and um, uh, you know, other uh, technologies um, that are necessary for us to kind of live better on the planet. The way that you're um, a citizen of Salmon Nation can participate sort of more explicitly in Salmon Nation is send us a salmon story firstly, but also, um, you know, the Magic Canoe is conceived in the end as kind of a public-facing way in which we can create um, kind of a movement for change. Uh, so the most sort of public expression of Salmon Nation is the Magic Canoe and um, uh, you people can sign up to be... Uh, members of that uh, and at the moment we're not really asking anybody to do anything except just to be in salmon nation and to be uh, uh, and to help us kind of actually um, conceive how this movement grows into something really powerful um, so we're kind of um, we do have some organizational threads there but the main thing I'd say is that um, we're hoping people will identify as being people of Salmon Nation and begin to sort of both offer and take cues from us as to what it means to live well in this place and how we can, um, you know, really change our relationship to nature. Because the thing about the pandemic, I think, in the end is that everything you read now talks about the fact that nature is and, and climate change is, is that you know, nature is sending us some very, very, very strong signals um, that we would be just um, totally foolhardy to ignore. And you know, there's an opportunity um, to change our relationship to nature before it's too late. And so we are just looking and promoting as diligently as we can um, new ways which are often old ways of living and being and seeing and sharing and figuring out how to um, exist on the planet in a much more productive relationship with nature than we've managed to do so far. 
the magic canoe is an evocative in, you know, taken out of context, maybe kind of a lofty name. I, I love the provenance of it. I'm, I'm privileged to know a little bit more about the story of how it came to be. Could you give us a little bit of that story and why you were so taken enough to name this storytelling entity after the magic canoe in, in your experience? Yeah, um, it's a beautiful story. Uh, I referred before to um, encountering and then becoming part of um, Ecotrust in the Kitlob um, in northern BC, and that's Hyasla and Hanakshila territory. And uh, one of the leaders in that community, um, Cecil Paul, uh, he was an elder um, and he re- was recovered from um, alcoholism and a number of other uh, predations that came via his um, journey through a residential school um, as a young boy and what that did to his life uh, and to his families. Um, and Cecil uh, um, went back to the Kitlope when he was recovering and uh, realised that um, the Kitlope was going to be logged. There were you know, tapes on trees where they were going to the forest company was going to come and start to build a road. And then he went back to his community and he said, well, this is our home and they're going to destroy it. Um, so in a very quiet way, um, the High School and Hanakshal began a quest to protect the Kitlope, and that's where they met Ecotrust, who had mapped um, the coastal rainforest of uh, North America and realized that the Kitlope was the largest unlogged watershed left in uh, all of um, Salmon Nation. Um, and they teamed up, and Cecil uh, had this vision of a canoe, which he called the Magic Canoe, and his idea was that anybody um, from any walk of life could join and become a paddler in his sort of metaphorical Magic Canoe, uh, and that um, you, uh, he, no one necessarily knew where the canoe was going, um, but if you joined and became part of this magic canoe, um, the Heisler and Hanakshila would achieve their goal of protecting their homelands, and that's what happened. Um, and he was such a gentle and beautiful speaker and such an inspiration to so many people. Um, and he uh, passed away um, about 18 months ago and um we, but we had remained very, very good friends for you know thirty years or so since I first encountered Cecil, and um, uh, and he said to us, you know, that he he kind of gifted us the idea of the magic canoe, and he said, use that in whatever way you can to promote uh, the goals of Salmon Nation, um, and that was a pretty amazing gift. Uh, and it's a, a it's a um, it's actually a book out uh, called The Magic Canoe. I really urge people to read. Um, and uh, uh, the Magic Canoe story is one of the great, the most beautiful stories. One of the great sort of powerful narratives that we have. Um, and at the core of the Magic Canoe, I guess the idea of it was. You know, when we were working at Ecotrust and then the Kitlope was protected, if you will, I'd put that in inverted commas, um, you know, 
and the government wanted to call it a park and the Heisler and Hanukkah kept saying, well, we don't know, we don't know what parks are. Why would you want to have a park? What's, what's that concept? We don't get that concept. We, you whitefellas, <laughs> you Boston people, as they referred to us, you have this idea of a protected area, but um, we don't. What, you, you think you're saving trees from logging, and of course you are, and we get that, and we're grateful for that. But what um, Cecil and others said was, you know, the kitboat is a container for our stories, and all the wisdom for living is in that container. And so you're not protecting a forest per se. You are actually protecting... Hushtuwashtu um, Niamjis uh, is what they called it. Hushtuwashtu is the land of milky blue waters. And Hushtuwashtu Niamjis is the land of milky blue waters because it's glacial up there. The land of milky blue waters and all the stories it contains. So that's what we protected in the kitboat. And I don't know about you, but that just sends shivers up my spine every time I think about that because it's a concept that we need to hold dear now, in this time especially, that's as close as I can, I think anybody can ever get to explaining both the potential for and the distance we've traveled from a relationship to nature which is um, respected and uh, articulated through our love and reverence for stories of how to live well and how to live with wisdom in this place. Wow. We are indeed riding the same wave. I, I got shivers uh, the moment you mentioned that. And um, thank you, Ian, for sharing that beautiful gift that has been given freely to you. And I'm, I'm truly sorry for the loss of your friend. I know how close you were. And um, what, a, what an incredible living gift that his living energy can be passed on through this vehicle of the magic canoe. Um, thank you. I wanted to pause and hover on that idea um, for a moment, um, a, a bit of a darker idea, but it's, I think, a really important part of what we're talking about here. Um, a massive focus on Salmon Nation as a concept is to follow the lead of indigenous wisdom and leadership. I'm a white guy from Seattle. You're a white guy originally from a colonized land like this is in Australia. We have entered a painful and absolutely necessary time of reconciliation with indigenous and First Nation peoples of North America. How do you get your mind around this in the light of the recent residential school atrocities in BC? You mentioned Cecil was a part of that. And we're in this pain right now, uh, mostly it's pain that is uh, intergenerational, uh, felt by um, the indigenous people of this land, and yet we are collectively looking to wisdom for them and from them. I mean, and um, and leadership from them. What is your thinking about the way forward in the light of where we currently are in this moment of of attempted reconciliation? Yeah, that's um, that's a very big question. Um, firstly, the uh, the very use of the word reconciliation, I think, is probably problematic because it's um, it's a little like 
the word sustainability or something. It just takes on this um, rhetorical kind of you know, label that is meaningless, frankly, um, I think. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, who's doing the reconciling with whom, for what reason, and everything else? You and and of course now, reconciliation is some watchword in every government program and every you know, corporate expression of whatever. And I just don't trust it, um, and I don't uh, um, trust the idea um, of reconciliation not to say that the, I mean we need a lot of reconciliation on a number of levels uh, with indigenous people with the planet um, and with ourselves uh, but I kind of as soon as something becomes a program it gives me the, you know, the heebie-jeebies um, uh, I think that the um, the and, and to the residential school question and uh, where you in Salmon Nation, but just as people, I think we're all struggling with how and where to um, um, place our hearts and our minds um, and our actions in terms of uh, how we grapple with this. Um, you know, it's it's called news <laughs> about um, you know the atrocities in the residential school is not actually news at all, or if it is, it's old news. Um, it's certainly not news to Indigenous people. And you know, we had a Re Truth and Reconciliation Commission up here which pro profoundly and publicly and widely shared a lot of these stories and was what we ended up with out of that with some programs about reconciliation and you know, some government grants. This goes way, way deeper, and I'm actually not qualified to know um, you know, what the right pathway is except to listen and be respectful and um, uh, and recognise that we all have a role to play in um, creating healthier communities uh, and also recognising and being humbled by the history um, that got us to the point where so many of our communities are so unhealthy. Um, you know, one of the... Um, you and our kind of journey through Salmon Nation, um, you, one of the Indigenous leaders uh, I've had the privilege of meeting more recently, um, Don Svanvik, is a uh, elected chief and hereditary chief up in Alert Bay um, in um, British Columbia, uh, the Namgeese Nation. And um, I was interviewing Don a few weeks ago, a few months ago, about... Um, Alexandra Morton's book on getting fish farms out of British Columbia. And uh, I asked on you know, what people could do to help First Nations um, because you know, we still have a reserve system here and you have a reservation system in the US and you know, um, the governance systems in First Nations are very much their own systems except for the ones that the colonizers imposed upon them. But the traditional leadership has its own way of leading and being and um, governing the affairs of Indigenous people. And there aren't many entry points for um, non-Indigenous people to engage with uh, First Nations people. Um, you're, uh, you're, you just sort of, you know, without sort of interfering, if you will. Um, but Don said, you know, the thing that 
Um, well, I interviewed him once and he actually said the greatest thing he said to me then was, I said, well, what do you want? And he said, well, we just want our stuff back. It was the first thing he said, you know, like, like our land and our fish and whatever. It was such a great comedy. We just want our stuff back so that we can look after ourselves and make our communities health, healthy. So that's the, that's the most um, uh, man-in-the-street way of talking about Indigenous rights and title that I've ever heard is we just want our stuff back. And I'd love that. You know, he, he could be an honorary Australian talking like that. Um, uh, but also more recently what he said was, you know, uh, because of the role of salmon in the lives of Indigenous people, he said the best thing that people can do um, to help First Nations is help uh, us maintain and keep and uh, help flourish a wild salmon uh, ecosystem. You know, the wild salmon, the the having wild salmon on this coast and making sure that wild salmon survive is the best thing that people can do to help First Nations because there's an absolutely causal link between the health of wild salmon and the health of Don's community and other people like Don. And so that sort of you know, brings us a bit full circle, I guess, but it is this notion that um, uh, you know, Don also said to me he didn't have a sockeye in his freezer. You know, he, he, you know, the, the fisheries had been so depleted that the basic idea of having you know, salmon preserved and frozen, dried, smoked, whatever, um, as the sort of um, base level food and source of nourishment, let alone culture and story and everything else, um, that the fishery was so bad that a man who lives in an area which used to be one of the greatest fisheries in the world was unable to keep a stock of fish in his freezer. So that needs to change. And I mean, some of your listeners will know that just you know, two weeks or so ago, the federal government here in Canada, which is so massively mismanaged um, the fisheries on both coasts, um, you know, East Coast Cod comes to mind, uh, actually um, did a 60% closure of commercial salmon fishing in British Columbia uh, because of the parlous state of our um, uh, salmon stocks here. So, you know, this is not um, th this is not sort of environmental rhetoric or something. I mean, our salmon stocks in this part of the coast have been in precipitous decline and are in danger of actually disappearing uh, altogether. So that's the fight, um, and it's not. Uh, an environmental fight, it is a profound social, cultural, economic, and environmental fight. Uh, and it's not just a fight about fish, it's a fight for human dignity, it's a fight for healthy communities, it's a fight uh, that affects everybody, whether they're in the 30th floor of an office building in Seattle or San Francisco or you know, whether they're out um, hauling a net somewhere. Uh, everybody, uh, everybody's life and livelihood and prosperity and health is on the line. Uh, 
And uh, if we don't get the salmon thing right, uh, then we've not only ignored the wisdom of people like Cecil Paul, uh, but we've actually ignored you know, one of the great opportunities to um, actually start to live well on the planet. And then I don't know what comes next, but it's not a scenario that I want to contemplate. And we've got a lot of work to do to unwind and unravel what we've done already to enable the space to open up for us to um, read the signals and do what we can to protect the lifeblood of Salmon Nation, which is Wild Pacific Salmon. I love that answer that Don Sandvik gave. And um, I agree with you that it seems at times um, helpless and hopeless and um, un- unable to conceive or execute on a way to do something, do something of substance for um, the feelings that I have about what has happened here in the past and my role in it now. And what a, what a tangible, real, and meaningful thing to say. Take action for preserving and regenerating these salmon stocks. That's the best thing you can do. I know the Elwha people said something similar when, you know, the contempl- it was a contemplative thing at the time of bringing the two illegal salmon blocking dams out of the Elwha River. They said, give us our damn salmon back. That was, the, that was what they said. And you understand that because it was their very life blood, everything about it, the culture, the spiritual aspect, the using every single part from the fish to sustain them. I just recently came back from Bristol Bay a month ago, and I'm about to head back up there again in a couple of weeks. And uh, Ian, you know, had the profound honor and privilege of being able to learn how to cut fish with a ulook in a traditional way from people that are still doing that work as part of their everyday culture, smoking fish, drying fish, using the heads, burying the heads, doing the things that Don was talking about is in dearth in BC waters right now. And that's why, you know, folks that know my work from this show and know what a incredible, uh, you know, uh, Spotlight, I've been trying to shine on Bristol Bay among so many other people because it is still intact. And that that is something that if we lose that line of defense, then we are in in real trouble because it takes, as you know full well, and as Don knows and as Alex Morton knows, it takes an incredible amount of energy and work to restore once the genie's been let out of the bottle in terms of colonization and... um, and corporatization of salmon stocks. Um, also, I, I, I completely agree, you know, um, words are oftentimes useless and meaningless. I mean, a word like reconciliation is akin, I think, to the thoughts and prayers for uh, that are, you know, always offered at a, a mass shooting or something in the United States. And so I'm with you. I believe that, you know, uh, this is a time for deep listening uh, for humility, compassion, and for taking, if we're going to take action, for taking action in a, in a tangible way for the wild salmon that to sustain us all in, in various ways, but especially 
the indigenous people who have been here for millennia. All right. Um, I wanted to go back for a second and we're starting to wind it down here now, but in that uh, original article, I talked about the head of this show. Um, you said something that, that stuck with me. You said um, in, in talking about a different and better and regenerative way about doing things in this part of the world, you said there's a third way, not just an industrial economy and not just calling it a park and throwing away the key. People want to live in a prosperous place, but not at the expense of nature or people or cultures. So uh, my observation has been, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this. Um, it seems there are factions of change makers who would like to see the whole thing bur burnt down to the ground, the whole system. And then there are other people who I think have um, idea that's more akin to that quote that you had in 2005. It's been a minute since that article. Where do you sit on all of that now? Um, I actually, it uh, sounds weirdly prescient. Um, probably the only prescient thing I've ever said. <laughs> but uh, So what was in my head then is what's in my head now, and it's why um, we're hoping Salmon Nation is part of, just a part of, um, a re-expression of that idea, but in as many practical ways as we can find. You know, we need each other at a time now that in a way that we've never paid full attention to. We need solutions. They're not going to come from government. They're not going to come from large corporations. They're not going to come from the system that uh, um, is basically built to defend itself. And systems change is happening. I mean, if you if if you can't see in the climate crisis and in the COVID pandemic, uh, among other things, um, also some of the upwelling of um, real anger and and, and uh, desire for change based on sort of uh, racial injustice and economic injustice, and you can add the residential schools into that and everything else. Systems change is occurring now uh, in very profound ways and um, your, our natural systems are um, doing their thing. Um, and it would be the height of sort of human hubris to imagine that some NGO or some government program or something rather is going to solve for any and all the complexities um, that are uh, headed our way in ways that um, you know, the ones that get headlines are the destructive ways. You know, you look at the droughts and the wildfires and uh, floods and you know all the calamities. So that's what gets the headlines. Um, so what we need to do, it seems to me, is actually harness this moment. There is a, an awareness that is um, unusual now, um, and uh, I think that we need to look inside. We need to look back to uh, uh, Indigenous wisdom, not as some artefact, uh, but actually um, you look at societies that have successfully lived for thousands of years, not just... Uh, you know, a short period of time in this region of the world. Um, and we just need to open up to each other and value knowledge and value experimentation and innovation 
and listen to the edges, listen to what's happening out in the edges where people are confronting these things right now and coming up with their own solutions in their communities and their own ways of increasing their food security or their energy supplies and everything, whatever it is, in ways that don't rely upon the industrial system, uh, which has failed us, frankly, and which has produced the effects that we're living with today. So um, listen to the edges, listen to voices people, voices of people who are mostly ignored by the media uh, and who are solving for things in practical ways and share like crazy because if we... If everything needs to be proprietary or if it has to have a sort of a value attached to it to be considered, you know, a capital value attached to it to be considered worthwhile, um, you, if everything has to have a return on investment, the only return that matters right now is a return to nature. You know, nature is the source of our productivity and our prosperity. If there's a return, if we need to return um frankly, the assets of nature to the natural system. Uh, we need to stop thinking that we need uh, an ROI on capital. We need to actually reformulate capital into producing a return on investment for nature. If we don't get that right, and that's not just impact investing or something, it's actually thinking profoundly differently about the role of capital in our world. If we don't get that right, um, uh, well, it's not for me to say we're doomed. Um, you, uh, Yogi Berra probably said something about the future ain't as bright as it used to be. Um, I think that's what he said, and <laughs> that's what worries all of us. Um, uh, and that's what should motivate all of us as we go about our lives in Salmon Nation. Well said. And um, let's bring it back full circle here to a digestible and tangible thing to do right now, any one of us in, in this incredible part of the bioregion, tell a salmon story. How have salmon affected us? Um, maybe you can give us a, a, a recap of why salmon stories. And and do you know? Do I need to be? I happen to be a filmmaker, but do I need to be a filmmaker to qualify to tell these kind of stories? No, you don't. I was in a restaurant in Vancouver a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, we had our masks on and a young woman was serving us and you know, my partner went um, to the bathroom and this woman was saying, what are you guys talking about? I overheard your conversation and I told her about the magic canoe and salmon story. She said, I've got a salmon story and she just took off on me. You know, I mean, um, everybody's got a salmon story and you don't need to have... Uh, media capabilities or anything you just basically you um, and it's actually not necessarily that easy for people to pick up a phone and tell themselves a salmon story into their camera so get someone to hold the camera for you just you know um, or go go talk to your uncle and ask him about salmon uh, or your aunt or whatever um, and point a phone at him and get him to share a salmon story I mean everybody's got one we want to hear them um, and we want everybody to be able to have a to participate in celebrating um, your frankly the most remarkable species that is um, the lifeblood of one of the most remarkable bioregions on earth. Uh, so we want people to celebrate. Um, and you're one of our elders, one of our trustees, 
uh, Miles Richardson, who's a former president of the Council of the Haida Nature, the Nation, uh, said um, nothing important in his world, in the world of the Haida people, happens without ceremony. Nothing. And we don't recognize that in our society well enough. And so I think of these stories as being um, part of ceremony. You know, let's, let's champion wild salmon. Let's tell our story and contribute to the ceremony of um, creating this fabric of stories across salmon nation. You know, what I hope we will see is this collection of stories will be just a beautiful, diverse, living embodiment of people sort of expressing why salmon are important to them to the point that it makes it impossible for us to lose wild salmon. What I fear a little, I have to say, is maybe this will one day be a remarkable archive of um, the sort of, you know, the sad um, way in which something that affected so many people in so many ways was allowed to slide away you know, because we didn't act uh, and we didn't pay attention in the ways we should have. So I don't want this to be an archive of would it have been nice if. I want this to be a, a ceremony and an expression and a celebration of the fact that we all care enough about salmon because we care enough about each other and we care enough about the place that sustains us that we raised our voices and said there's no one right thing to say. We said the many, many, many things that we need to say and hear from each other um, that make it possible to, possible for us to think about the fact we might just um, have wild salmon in the future in perpetuity. That would be a good thing. Wild salmon give their very lives so that life itself can continue. What a wonderful tribute to these creatures that are the bedrock of this bioregion. Thank you, Ian. And um, with that, no one gets out without the bonus round. So are you prepared? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, here we go. So uh, this is a fantastical thing. You're, this is not actually going to happen as I knock on wood. But just say, just say uh, your, your house were on fire and you could only get out other than your loved ones and your animals qualify, but you could get out one physical thing. What would that physical thing be? Hmm. Uh, what would that physical thing be? Um, I'm just looking around and thinking about that. I think it would be possibly a shell or a piece of wood. It would probably be something wooden because I love wood. That's one of the other great things in this region. Um, uh, um, I have just near the exit to my door a picture of Cecil Paul. I'd probably put that under my arm and run out with that as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would, um, I would probably take a wooden object, something that um, smells of the coast, probably a cedar object. I'm not quite sure which one. Um, and I'd probably tuck that photo of Cecil under my arm. I, I, I guess I probably should then run upstairs and get photos of the kids as well and a photo of Zoe and you know, on and on and on. So <laughs> <But> anyway, <laughs> so I'm not uh, leaving well. with only one thing. 
but uh, yeah, that would be all right. Well, you're you're a, a man of action, so I have no doubt you could do it. All right, then. Um, two things, then, in a more metaphysical way, uh, more kind of spiritual way. Two things that you could take out of the fire that make Ian Ian. What would you take? Hmm. Um, uh, love of place and love of a good story. Amen, brother. All right. Anything that you would leave in the fire to be purged or purified? I, uh, I think like all of us, we um, can look back and think that we've um, spent sometimes our time unwisely in some it's at some junctures um, you know there is uh, um, I think um, where I've wasted time I'd, I'd be happy to leave that behind where I've wasted my um, whatever talents I have where I've wasted them uh, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to um, you know, burn that up and have that time back. Um, but I also qualify that by understanding that it's only by doing that and making some poor choices that you even recognize what a good choice is. It's true. It's experience. But I do share that sentiment about um, the, all the time that I've, I've spent worrying about things. And uh, I think that's probably what I would leave in the fire too. Well, Ian, Gil, uh, I, I am so glad to be connected together, and I should mention that uh, Salmon Nation is a partner in this show, in this podcast, and um, we are planning on moving forward together on um, producing and maintaining and, and really getting more content from this bioregion out in, into the world. So I'm really looking forward to that and all of the incredible human beings that uh, we're going to be able to encounter through this really cool way of communicating with each other. So um, for today, I want to thank you. And um, for folks that want to get involved as a Salmon Nation member of this network, or um, also more importantly right now, to tell your Salmon story, how do folks do that? Uh, SalmonNation.net is our website. Um and if you go on there, there's a, a little place you can click that says Salmon Stories. And uh, if you want to go out there and harvest some stories for us and get a fellowship to do so, just there's a form to fill out and it's pretty easy to sort of um, express your interest. And if you have a salmon story to share, there's a quick little primer on how to shoot one and where to send it. And uh, we'd love to hear from people. Brilliant. Ian Gill, thank you so much. I, will... I was just going to say, and thank, and thank you, Mark, for the work you do. I want to just make sure that um, we honour your role uh, as, um, as, as you're a very powerful voice for Salmon and for Salmon Nation. I want to thank you for that. Well, I, 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 I truly love them. I'm truly mystified by them. And, uh, you know, who knew? Salmon growing up fishing for them and, and uh, just in love with the mystery of them. It's become a life's work. So I'm grateful. And uh, Ian Gill, we will see you down the trail. Until next time. Thanks, man. How do you say what you love?
Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.